from the city of brotherly love. This is Shark Bite Biz with David Strausser. You just read to the newest episode of Shark Bite Biz. I'm your rock star wannabe host, David Strasser, and this is your place to learn how to grow a business during complete global chaos. Today, we're going to talk about measuring marketing. First, though, remember, if you love this show and you're watching on YouTube, do us a favor. Hit that little super thanks button. I think it's a heart with a dollar side right there on the bottom of the video. Your donation goes a long way to help us spread the word of what we're doing with these amazing guests. Now, another way to support us is with DeadHouseCoffee.com, where you can get the freshest coffee that is roasted, sealed, and delivered to your doorstep within a 24-hour period. Use code SHARK. You'll get 20% off. We'll get all the proceeds to keep doing all the magic that we do here at Shark Bite Biz. Let's get back to today's show. Again, we're going to be talking about measuring marketing and how to get the biggest bang for your buck. So who do we have today? None other than Louis Rothkopf. Louis Rothkopf is the president of Martin, the modern media buying and measurement platform for marketers who want to measure the true impact of their marketing. Having led global businesses and revenue lines at the world's foremost marketing ad tech and media companies, Lewis joined Martin as its president with more than 20 years experience in digital media. So hey, without further ado, let's bring Lewis right on in here. Reach your customer. Lewis, welcome to Shark Bite Biz, you my friend. You just became shark bait. It is great to be here. This is this is the first uh, podcast I've done with an animal, uh, especially a marine animal in the name. So this is already a treat. Well, you know, in a world of sharks, you got to be the one that bites first, right? That's right. And that's what I was thinking, you know, because business sharks, I mean, uh, not so much Shark Tank because everybody was like, you know, did you set up because Shark Tank? And no, it wasn't because of Shark Tank. It just, I always thought of in business like sharks, you know, you're going out there and you're hunting and especially in the sales and biz dev world, which is where I come from. But thank you. It's such a, you know, honor to have somebody so as accomplished as you on. And that'll lead us right into our first question, which is our tradition on the show. We ask everybody, hey, who are you? Where'd you come from? What you do? What do you do now? How'd you get there? Basically, tell us in a nutshell, what makes Lewis, Lewis? In a nutshell. So I'm Lewis. Uh, I'm from uh, New York. I live in New York City. I'm a almost lifetime New Yorker. Uh, I've been in the digital advertising business for 23 years, uh, which is both exciting and, and terrifying. Uh, I work for a company called Martin. Uh, we're a DSP. That's a demand side platform uh, that helps connect uh, marketers with the consumers and audiences they are looking to reach. Um, I'm doing this because I want to make advertising better. Uh, digital advertising for the last couple of decades has been really unnecessarily overcomplicated. And things that were a problem 20 years ago are still a problem today. Uh, and so my my mission, give us an example of some of those problems. The, the biggest concerns that we have are really twofold. The first is consumer privacy. 
Um, the industry was not designed uh, in the late 1990s to violate consumers' privacy or to make them feel creepy every time a retargeted ad follows them around the internet. And yet, that is in many cases where we find ourselves um, as an industry. And, and then thing two is... You start talking about dog treats and then all of a sudden you start seeing dog treats pop up on your Facebook timeline. Andy Richter had this tweet a few years ago. Where I think he said he was shopping for a toilet seat. And every time since then, uh, based upon the ads that he's seeing, he believes people must think he's like a toilet seat aficionado. Um, and and that, is, that is the result of what we call failure to close the loop. So if you are in market for a toilet seat, for instance, then great. Let's show you all the ads about toilet seats from all the way at the top of the marketing funnel all the way down. But when you've bought one, for the love of God, like get me out of that segment because there is no need to, right? So that's that sort of thing one. And, and then that, that, that's actually a very valid point there because closing the loop is is important. And I mean, I never, uh, to be honest, I never thought about that um, until you said it. I mean, unless it's something like we have our dead house copy where it's like, okay, you know, that's something people are going to continuously buy. Okay. Subscription buy whatever they want to do. But for example, a toilet seat, it's a great example. I mean, how many people are going out and buying toilet seats all the time? Yeah. Maybe they have three or four bathrooms. So they buy three or four different seats, depending on different things. But once they make that buy, I mean, unless they're doing weird crap with their toilets, they're probably not buying those annually or semi-annually. But yet after you make the purchase, you could still be seeing toilet seat ads for months or years after you've already purchased and it's no longer relevant to you. Well, not only is it no longer relevant to the consumer, it's a waste of money. Right. If, if that consumer has you know, made the purchase, if they're looking for a Star Wars mug and they bought the Star Wars mug and it's one of a kind, uh, then stop, stop paying to show them an ad for a thing for which they're no longer in market. Yeah, no, that that makes makes total sense. I mean, I, I'm just thinking through all the things that um we've bought i mean even for the podcast stuff like that i would say probably the only ads that are relevant is i i'm a guitarist i uh, although i have not played since august because of my back injuries uh which has probably been the worst part uh, i just finally got clearance to be able to pick up the weight of these 10 pound guitars because uh, I have Liz Paul, so they're usually, you know, about nine to 12 pounds on average, I'd say, for the ones I have. And uh, that, that's that been the hardest part of the back injury. I mean, not being able to play guitar. Wow. Such a first world problem as I think about it. But, you know, seeing guitar ads are good because I am a not a compulsive buyer. But when I see something unique, uh, I view guitars as pieces of art. Some people invest in art, okay? The guitars I buy, okay, they're all handmade. I mean, even if it's a mass-produced Gibson Les Paul that they're making 100,000 copies of, you know, like look at Slash's uh, uh, Green Snake guitar. I forget the name of it, but, you know, they probably made like 100,000 different copies of those, but because they're all handmade, 
They're all the burn marks in the guitar are all hand burnt, hand finished. Every single one is unique and every single one has a different weight. I mean, even though it's the same guitar, one could be 9.1 pounds versus one 9.2 pounds. And every every single, I mean, it, it's crazy. It gets down to that much detail. So each one is unique, a little bit different. And I think even if they're the same guitar, two, you know, two guitars don't have the same sound. They can sound pretty darn close, but I'm sure that there's some ear that can pick them apart that now they're a little different. Um, but I view it as I'm buying it. It's a piece of art and, you know, kind of like an investment to where, you know, right now it's a good market for, for used guitars. I mean, I just sold one I got for about 2250, I think, and I ended up offloading it for about five grand. So, um, yeah, yeah. It went up in value. I bought it probably about 10, 10 years ago. So, um, you know, seeing guitar ads, my point is right. Is he seeing guitar ads? I mean, that's something that I enjoy. I, I'm a big believer in, I understand the privacy concerns. Okay. It does freak me out if I'm thinking about something and then all of a sudden I'm seeing ads on that stuff, but I would rather see targeted ads than random targeted ads that have zero interest in me. Where do you stand in that line? Uh, it's interesting. So the more uh, relevant to the consumer's interests, the better, the more it's been shown over and over again, that the better the advertising works, which means it's a better experience for the consumer, better experience for the advertiser, but you got to do it in a way that is efficient, right? So as we mentioned a moment ago, you don't want to keep buying ads for somebody who's already made their decision. You've got to do it in a way that's precise. So let's say you are a guitar enthusiast, but you're broke. And so you're still going to all of these sites and you're checking out guitars and you're kind of like your tongue's hanging out. You're like, man, I want that. But you have no money. You don't want, the marketer does not want you to be in the category of guitar intenders. And so being able to use all of the available signals to differentiate between someone who loves Ferraris versus somebody who has the financial wherewithal to buy a Ferrari is, is really critical. Big difference. I mean, I'll look at some of these one-of-a-kind uh, Gibson custom shop guitars. I mean, if you ever get a chance and you want to see some crazy pieces of art, I mean, these are official Gibson guitars. I mean, they go 25 grand plus. I mean, I never be able to, um, well, never say never, but uh, in the short term, I probably would ne uh, not buy one of those guitars or be able to afford one at 25 grand plus. But there, I mean, some extremely unique designs and I'm just looking at them for all that intricate detail and appreciating it. And I guess you could say almost fantasizing about it, but I'm not going to buy that guitar and no matter how much I love it. I mean, unless I tell my wife that I wanted in a giveaway, there's no way that's going to be able to come in the house. I mean, and I've already pulled that twice. So I don't know if I could do a third time. So that works too, right? So let's say uh, you visit the really expensive guitar sites, places, uh, and you're not buying them. But then you go and you visit the more moderately priced guitar places. And so you do buy them. Um, it's helpful for the marketer to understand that you are somebody who 
is an enthusiast in one category, call it the $25,000 and up guitar category, but a purchaser uh, in a different category. So call it the, you know, $5,000 and down category. Right. Yeah. I mean, typically most of my guitars, I'd say between one and uh, 5,000 bucks. So the most expensive one I have right now, uh, MSRP was about 7,000 plus. Uh, in fact, it's crazy. The case alone is like a uh, beautiful stainless steel case. It's worth seven hundred dollars. I well, it used to be. It might even be worth more. If I wanted to sell just the case alone, I could easily get seven hundred bucks on eBay right now. Uh, it's insane. Um, but I, I I got a hell of a deal off of a company that was um, they were an authorized dealer but they were losing Gibson. I guess they didn't sell enough and they just needed to sell off the inventory as quick as possible. And as long as you bought it from them within that time period, it was good. And I ended up getting this 7,000 MSRP guitar for about 2,500 bucks. Um, so that is that that's the one I use in the pictures. It's my favorite. It's a blueberry burst high performance model. It's amazing. And uh, in fact, I was just watching a TV show. Um, I can't remember the name, but uh, there was a, a black woman that was playing guitar and singing. And she starts to play the lead riff and they showed the guitar. I'm like, oh, my God, that's the same exact guitar I got. And I was blown away because it, like I'm like, she makes it sound so much better than I do. And it, it was really, really rocket to see that. Uh, if I remember what show that was, um, I was binge watching one weekend. Um, I will a hundred percent put it on the uh, the outro segment for this video uh, if people want to see it. But um, uh, so I've got to ask you. I mean, you brought up a lot of good, valid points up until right now. So as marketers, I mean, how, how do you know that the marketing then is actually working for the people? I mean, what kind of KPIs are you looking for? I mean, sales are one indicator, I, I, I presume. But I mean, sales can come from anywhere. I mean, how would you view this? Yeah, good question. So our company, for instance, we measure success. We optimize to success at all funnel stages, ranging from brand awareness. You know, perhaps you have a new brand and want to make more consumers aware of it. Perhaps you have uh, the need to change your reputation uh, as a brand, um, all the way down to um, actual visits uh, and purchases. And if it's online visits, uh, if it's online purchases, what we call incrementality measurement is always on. So incrementality measurement is the delta between the number of people who saw your advertising and bought the thing because they saw the advertising versus people who saw your advertising, comma, bought the thing. But they were going to buy the thing anyhow. So your ad that you showed to them was not a good use of, of your marketing dollars. Right. It cost you money because they were going to, to buy that. So maybe get a little bit more granular. I mean, how do you separate that 
out then in detail that's also accurate. Yeah. So uh, you come to the, we're a demand side platform. It's called a DSP. Uh, we connect marketers with consumers. Um, you come to the platform and you're asked the question, what do you want to do? Uh, do you want to raise awareness of your brand? Do you want to drive foot traffic to a retail location? Do you want to drive online sales? Um, and based upon what they select, we use a number of different techniques and in some cases, some partners to help understand the effectiveness of the campaign and then optimize towards it. Because what you don't want to do is run a campaign for brand awareness and you go out to a brand study company and you spend a bunch of money and they do a study for you. And maybe uh, you get some of the results midway through the flight. Sometimes you don't get any results until after the campaign's over. And then what, like, what are you going to do? So you got to be able to do that in as close to real time as possible so that you can make those changes as quickly as possible um, to make the most of your marketing budget and, and reduce waste. How, how quick is quick? I mean, you're talking days, weeks, months. It depends on the channels and it depends on the KPI. So if it's online sales or website visits, it's virtually instant. Um, for brand uh, awareness and brand lift, for instance, we work with a great partner called Lucid. Um, they survey uh, consumers. They have, I think they call a panel of panels, which are consumers who've opted in to see advertising and then get questions answered based upon it. So they um, show the ad to some consumers and they show not the ad to some consumers. And the difference between those two pools and any lift uh, that's measured in brand awareness, brand perception. Um, that's where you get to your KPI. Uh, for for online sales, it's it's quite different. Um, it's simply a matter of the conversion event being the sale. You can imagine that works really well for e-commerce marketers. Then for retail, um, we're also able to measure with a partner called Cubic foot traffic. So if you are a bank. Uh, and you're not really expecting people to open an account online for whatever reason. You want them to come into the branch location. We can actually measure how many people who saw the ad went to that branch location after having seen or, or heard the ad. So how do you how do you actually pull that off? Can you discuss some of the secret sauce there? That that's interesting in itself. It is sauce, but it is not secret. So for online conversions and for Online sales, we use a methodology called ghost bids. Uh, we didn't invent it. Um, I would encourage folks to, to Google it, either ghost bids or ghost ads. But the long and the short of it is it uses the same techniques as drug trials, randomized control trials. You differentiate between those whom you've treated, right? In our case, it's those who've seen the ad. Um, and then your control group. These are folks who've, who've not seen the ad. Now, we're doing internet advertising and not saving lives. So whereas with drug trials, you need to be really, really, really precise. Um, in advertising, you can model um, a bit. So you don't necessarily have to have the exact same population of individuals that are surveyed. You're able to do data modeling um, using anonymous identifiers to sort of uh, infer some takeaways from um, is this working? Is this not working? Okay. So I want to ask then like older stuff, like proxy metrics, first off, what is a proxy metric and why would you say that they are the wrong way to measure ads? The worst thing we did as an industry 
we started to do in the late 90s when we provided reports to advertisers that had two metrics on them, impressions and clicks, uh, which led enterprising individuals to say, aha, a measure of campaign success is the click-through rate, how many people who saw the campaign clicked on it. Unfortunately, it turns out to be one of the worst measures of campaign success because you're just measuring how many people clicked on an ad, not how many people clicked on an ad on purpose uh, because they were in market for something. And so even some of the earliest studies were showing that people who click on ads tend to not be the same people who buy stuff. And so other metrics, uh, first of all, I am very sorry to say that there are marketers who are still optimizing to click through rate today. And I cannot possibly recommend against that more. More metrics came out in more recent years, something like cost per action. So what was the cost that it took to get the user to take the action? But once again, you're measuring the action. You're not measuring the causal relationship between ad and the action. So you're going to get responses to your advertising, but is the response to your advertising or is the response to people who saw the ad coincidental to their actual purchase? And we call these things vanity metrics because a high click-through rate makes you feel good. You're like, hell yeah, like 1% click-through rate. But then when you dig a layer or two deeper and you walk over across the office to the person who's responsible for online sales and they're like, well, sales didn't really pick up, then you see the weakness of click-through rate um, and even cost per action as a, as a KPI. Here's a, a question for you. I mean, as of late, Apple has ruffled some feathers with companies like Facebook and, and Google as far as the tracking and privacy stuff. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, uh, Google is starting to slowly um, uh, you know, follow suit with Apple or at least to some degree. Uh, how is that going to affect the targeted ad space? What has what Apple's already done affected it? I mean, give us the landscape of this privacy versus targeted ad landscape. Great point and great last phrase, because I don't think it is. I don't think those two are opposing forces. Um, you can have targeted advertising and precise attribution. Uh, and you can respect consumers' privacy at the same time. So we would love for those feathers to continue to be ruffled. Uh, we think that improving consumer privacy is a good thing for two reasons. First of all, it's the right thing to do. And, and by it, maybe just for your listeners um, and viewers who, who aren't as familiar, um, Apple made a change to iOS, uh, I guess about a year ago now or, or shortly after that, um, that uh, gives consumers the option to have their actions in one app um, be able to be used in other apps. Um, and of course, most consumers have said, no, like I, I don't want you to track me across apps. Like, why would I want you to do that? And so it's really incumbent upon uh, app developers and marketers to educate consumers on why that's important. But the key there is educate consumers, not assume things about what their wants uh, are. Google, on the other hand, is doing something similar um, with its web browser. They announced recently that Chrome was going to deprecate the use of third-party advertising cookies. And what that means is very similar to the Apple move. 
it is much more difficult to identify users, even anonymously, and then track their behavior and target them based upon those attributes. These are very good things. First reason, as I mentioned, is privacy. Consumers deserve privacy, period, full stop. The second reason is, as you get into a world in which consumers are affirmatively opting in to have their anonymous browsing behavior observed and optimized based upon those observations, well, now targeting an attribution becomes much more accurate. So the pool of users who've opted in is smaller, but now you know with certainty, especially if you're using a logged in user called authenticated traffic. So I go to lewis'swebsite.com and I log in, and I check a box that says, I'm cool with logging in not only to this site, but to a whole bunch of other websites at the same time. And so I've now consented uh, for that anonymous information to be used for the purpose of tracking and targeting. And if you don't want that to happen, then don't check the box. And it, it's really that simple. And that's how we as an industry envisioned interest-based advertising um, to be back in the late 90s and early 2000s. Unfortunately, um, this is why we can't have nice things. Um, there are actors in the space who did not respect um, the spirit and, and the letter behind those regulations, self-regulations. And so now you have law, you have the GDPR in Europe, you have CCPA, the California Consumer Privacy Act uh, in California, you have similar acts being uh, worked on throughout the 50 states and Canada. Um, the message from from consumers and politicians. I think that's crazy, though, in the United States, just from the aspect that you can't have a hodgepodge thing of, you know, 50 different states with or without their own privacy law. That's the one thing, while I don't necessarily disagree with California's, uh, what is it, the CCPA, I think I lived out there when it was coming out um, before I moved to, to Philadelphia. But um, it's not that I necessarily, uh, you know, agree or, or disagree with it, but it's the, the principle that I don't like that for something like that because of the fact that internet traffic is global. You don't know where people are coming from. They could be in another state. How can one state dictate the terms for other 49 states? And what if that one state's law conflicts with a new law that they do in Texas or Florida, which is, you know, polar opposite of what California is with a lot of this stuff? And I, I really think it needs to be taken to the federal level, much as the European Union. I mean, instead of each country pretty much having their own thing, they have the, what is it, the GDPR uh, for the whole Eurozone. Or in Canada, uh, they don't have it with each providence. It's for the whole country. I think that's the one thing I don't like about what California is doing in the U.S. and other states that matter as far as what they're starting to do. I think it needs to be a federal issue, not a state's issue in that regard, because, again, you're talking global interstate traffic. And, you know, there is the interstate commerce clause of the, the Constitution that needs to be respected. And that's where I think it goes to the federal level. So I'm I'm not a lawyer and I don't even play one on podcasts, but I, I think it is inevitable that you'll see federal legislation around this. The, the patchwork of individual state laws 
and the idiosyncrasies between them, um, I think has created a, an environment that's untenable for, for folks who are looking to market to the whole of the US or the whole of the European economic area. Um, and so I, I think you will see, there already are discussions around having it happen at the federal level. If I had to guess as a layperson, it would be, it's just a matter of time before that happens. Yeah. I mean, first we would need actually Congress to do something and agree upon uh, something and uh, with midterms. Daylight the savings it looks time. They, they agreed. They just agreed. Daylight <laughs> savings time. Well, there you well go. that was the Senate. You, now you need the House of Representatives and you got to remember the big divide with that. This is funny that you bring this up because I was actually pro the the daylight savings time with the change to stay permanent daylight in the evenings. I love that. Um, you know, I lived in Peru for a while and it gets dark there pretty much around the same time. There's like a half hour variance winter or summer. It's not like it is here. And uh, that kind of drove me nuts. I always thought that was way too early, you know, six o'clock or six thirty on a summer evening, and it's dark. It's like I'm used to, you know, eight eight thirty nine o'clock. But um, who was it? It was uh, Sager on the Breaking Points that I was watching, and he made an argument like, "Yeah, obviously, I think Marco Rubio was the one sponsor, and I think there was a Democrat." But it's like for Florida, that makes absolute sense. It's the sunshine state. It benefits them having that extra hour of light. But what about people in Michigan or uh, northern Minnesota that at 9 a.m. it's still dark and they've got to go to work or get their kids to school? You know, so there's that effect of it as well, too, that it's not all as positive as we we think. And did you know that they actually tried that once in the 70s? It did. Uh, I agree with everything you said. Um, as a parent of small children, uh, this stuff could not be done away with fast enough from my perspective. The one hour jet lag of uh, spring ahead fall back is enough to disrupt bedtimes and behavior uh, and all sorts of things for about a week. You wouldn't think it like you travel from New York to Chicago. It's one hour difference. And you're like, I barely feel it. But boy, you change the wake up time by one hour in your bed. And it's just like the world has come to an end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I get arguments on all sides of it. But I do think that, uh, you know, in the 70s, they did try this. OK, uh, a lot of people don't remember this or don't know this. I think they did. It, I forget if it was a year or two, Sauger, when he did his monologue, he had all the data on the screen. Then obviously I'm too lazy to Google and pull it up right now. But um, they did it in the 70s for like a year or two. And they hated it that bad that they actually had to change it back and reverse back to how we are now. Now, I think there's a big difference. There's a lot of modern amenities and technology now that we didn't have 50 years ago in the 70s. So, um, yeah, wow, 50 years ago, the 70s. That, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? You know, about 1970. Wow. That, but anyways, um, you know, there's a lot of things that maybe could ease it now. But uh, we'll see. We'll see where it goes. I guess it's up to the 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 House of Representatives now to actually pass it, and then it goes to the president to sign off. Well, now I'm super confident in in, in the hands of the House. I'm super confident this will be done 
expeditiously uh, and with minimum rancor. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was surprised. There's not many hundred to zero votes these days in the Senate. And it was either I, I it was either 99 to zero or it was a uh, hundred to zero. So that was uh, that was pretty crazy. Um, you know, so it'll be really interesting to see how that how this all plays out. Um, especially, you know, again, because you have midterm elections coming up this year. So uh, that always puts a fun spin on things. But anyways, I got one last question for you before we head out and startup company. Okay, how can a startup company compete with these industry behemoths, these giant big tech companies that purposefully, I, I feel on purpose, try to put more regulations and get regulations passed because it's quote unquote better for the industry when in realistically it just putting the buyer up higher for companies to, you know, it's making the barrier of entry higher for companies to compete against them. And it helps them protect their turf because they can comply with those regulations. So how can a startup truly compete with these industry behemoths? Do better. Uh, right. Find what you're really good at. Find the uh, vector of attack into the hegemony. Um, build a loyal customer base of people who believe in what you do and why you do it differently. Look, I mean, my own business, we're up against Google, right? Like it, 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 it was any business you're in. Uh, you're going to be up against Google. And so you can't lose sleep over that. What you have to do is figure out, you know, what is your ideal client profile? Who are the people that can benefit most from what we do? Build a great product. And then, you know, eyes in front of you, one step after the other. Right. That That's amazing. You know, and I, I totally agree. I, I would say the only thing I would probably add to that is also don't be afraid to be a disruptor. If you think that you're in the right, I mean, you got to look uh, at Uber, you, you know, when they started and left, uh, they didn't ask for permission because if they did, it would have been impossible to start up. They just went out, they did it. Uh, and you know, they were in legal flight fights around the globe that are still lasting till this very day. But their success, their their value was built on just doing it and, and getting it done. And, you know, sometimes it's better not to ask for permission, especially if you're a disruptor going up against, you know, in that time they weren't going up against big tech, but they were going up against big corporate taxi lobbyists and the medallions and all that stuff which is kind of similar to what, you know, it's like going up against big tech right now, you know, trying to go up against Uber, for example, yeah, is the same fight that they had when they had to start out. So everybody's got to start somewhere. Anyway, Lewis, it's been an amazing pleasure to have you on the show. Tell us where can people find more about you? Where can they digitally stock your company and opt in? Uh, give us all the deets. Martin just like the person's name, .ai. There's a lot of stuff on the site that is not uh, a brochure for what we do. There's a lot of points of view that are available to anybody for free. Highly recommend checking it out. If you'd like to actually have a conversation, hello at martin.ai will get you to me. Okay, perfect. Hey, Lewis, thank you. I hope you enjoyed your time. This was this amazing. Was fun. Thank you so much for having me. Yep, no problem. Cheers. Wow, that was an incredible chat with Lewis, right? 
First, you all know the routine. If you found this interview helpful, if it sparked those warm and fuzzies, do me a favor, hit that like button, smash that subscribe button. But if you really want to help us out because you know Shark Bite Biz is the greatest kept secret out there in the world, the small business growth, please share us out to your friends, your family, your colleagues, anywhere that you dwell on the interwebs, whether it be Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Minds, any site out there. I'd love to see nothing more than Lewis, Martin AI, as well as Shark Bite Biz trending. Now let's get back to our rock star guest, Mr. Lewis. Being a small company and having to compete with industry behemoths, it's tough. A good website and an amazing marketing campaign can make your five-person shop look like a Fortune 500 business. What most companies do wrong, though, is with their ad campaigns. They're just throwing money at marketing and really hoping for results with no true insight if it's actually performing for them or not. That's where Lewis's business is different, and they help you compete with those industry giants by allowing you to get real measurements of how your performance campaigns are actually doing. Anyways, awesome stuff, Lewis. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing about the mission about how Martin.ai is really helping small businesses achieve growth. I really love it. Question of the day, how do you measure your marketing results? Leave a comment down below. And remember, if you want to be on the show, interviews at Shark Bite Biz, join the channel. It's only $3 a month if you're on YouTube and you can become a baby shark or big tech, not your thing. Don't worry. Head right on over to deadhousecoffee.com where you'll get the freshest zombie themed coffee on planet Earth. Uh, use code shark you'll save 20 percent. we'll get the proceeds to continue what we're doing here i also got to mention we've got our live stream set up finally for july 25th it's going to be my co-host odata pine it's going to be 6 p.m eastern right here on youtube and y'all know this by now but i'll tell you again anyways i'm david strausser this is shark bite biz we'll see you all next episode cheers Thank you for listening to Shark Bite Biz. We hope you got some insightful info from this podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and visit us on the web at www.sharkbitebiz.com. How has business changed for you in the 20s? Email us at podcast at sharkbitebiz.com so you can join us and share your story.